Every living entity is covered by a subtle and gross body. The subtle body is the covering of mind, ego, intelligence, and consciousness. It is said in the scriptures that the constables of Yamaraj cover the subtle body of the culprit and take him to the abode of Yamaraj to be punished in a way that he is able to tolerate. He does not die from this punishment, because if he died, then who would suffer the punishment? It is not the business of the constables of Yamaraj <clears throat> to put one to death. In fact, it is not possible to kill a living entity because factually he is eternal. He simply has to suffer the consequences of his activities of sense gratification. The process of punishment is explained in Chaitanya Charitamrita. Formerly, the king's men would take a criminal in a boat in the middle of the river. They would dunk him by grasping a bunch of his hair and thrusting him completely underwater. And when he was almost suffocated, the king's constables would take him out of the water and allow him to breathe for some time, and then they would again dunk him in the water to suffocate. This sort of punishment is inflicted upon the forgotten soul by Yamaraj, as will be described in the following verses. Gyananjana Shalakaya Chakshurannevitangena Tasman Shri Guravena Maha Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Gadara Shri Vasanigar Bhaktivinda Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare Vanchakapata Rubisha, Kripa Sindhu Devacha, Patitanam Pavanabhya, Vaishnavabhya Namanamaha. As a criminal is arrested for punishment by the constables of the state, a person engaged in criminal sense gratification is similarly arrested by the Yamadutas, who bind him by the neck with strong rope and cover his subtle body so that he may undergo severe punishment. So we have a story. It's a Vedic story. One neighbor was running and asking the other one, she said, Tara, are you going to the palace of the king? There's a sage. There's a sage that the king is hosting, and he's giving four benedictions. How many of you heard the story, the story of the four blessings? You think you've heard it? We shall see. No? So she said, oh, he, oh what? Yes, so maybe you'll get a blessing too. I want to go. So they hurried off and they went to the palace. There was a crowd. There was an assembly of people and they were very excited, thrilled, expectant, because the sage was a renowned sage, and he was known to have great powers. So the four blessings, there were already four people who were chosen. So everybody was there, waiting expectantly. The sage came, the king came, he introduced the sage, and then the first person in line was a prince. Now it's the sage and the prince. So what benediction is he going to give? So then the sage, he, um, he looked at the person and said, Oh, my dear sir, you are the son of a great king. You are a prince. May you, may you live forever. May you live forever and ever. And everybody said, Jai, Jai. Rajaputra ki? Jai. Ki Jai. And they were very happy. The prince he got such a wonderful benediction. So the next in line um, was a brahmachari, a celibate student, and he came up. And the sage surveyed him and he said, 
May you, may you die immediately. And there was a gasp from the crowd. They shrank back. They scandalized the world. What? That's easy. You do that. May you die immediately. Their hearts sunk. And then there was a third line. This devotee. And everybody's waiting now. What, what will he say, the sage? I mean, he's spoiled the whole mood already. They're whispering among themselves. So then the saintly person came forward and the sage said, Oh, you are such a saintly person. You? May, you, may you either live or die. Live or die, saintly person. So they breathed a sigh of relief, the crowd. Oh, this is not so bad. They breathed a sigh. You live, you die, the same. Next in line was the butcher. He was trying to put on a humble face. You know, and the crowd again, they're waiting, hushed expectantly. And the sage looked at him and he said, You, may you not live, not die. Don't live, don't die. And everyone was just devastated. The poor butcher, he hung his head down, dismayed. And before they knew it, the sage he disappeared in the distance, leaving the crowd in a stunned silence. Don't live, don't die. Now this is a Vedic story. Prabhupada actually um, referenced the story more than once in his lectures. So it has deep meaning and moral. So I am inviting you to please explain what are the hidden meanings behind this story the moral behind this parable. So we are asking, is this the story of you? The four blessings. Any volunteers? He told, what did he tell the prince? May you live forever. Why did he tell the prince that? <coughs> the sage. Because he was in a very opulent position, and so the sage's blessing was for him to continue in that way, and <clears throat> I guess it's possible, because usually a prince is enjoying a lot of sense gratification, and so when the prince dies, then he has to go and suffer for his sinful activities, if they were sinful. And um, so the Satan's benediction was that he can continue living. Thank you. Yes, that's correct. A life of sense enjoyment, luxury, and um, like it's especially sex enjoyment. He has money. He has wealth. So he's engaging wantonly in sense gratification and not using his human form of life properly. <clears throat> so better you live forever because when you die, you will have a hellish life, the repercussions. And the brahmachari, what is the benediction of the brahmachari? May you die immediately. It seemed harsh. It seemed undeserved. It seemed cruel. What's the hidden meaning behind that truth? Meaning he's ready, he, he attained the enlightenment, like he fulfilled his uh, current life, or enlightened his uh, indulgence, he's ready to move on. He's ready to move on. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, he's taking austerities, following a strict life, you know, uh, undergoing so much penance, and he's ready for a better destination. Go back to Godhead. The third benediction, the third blessing to the saintly person, the devotee, what was that? Third benediction. You can live or you can die. Live or die. <clears throat> live or die. What's the mark behind it? Live or die. Either way, you're serving, so it doesn't matter. Either way, you're serving the Lord, 
whether you're in this world or whether you leave the world, you're always engaging in devotional service. The fourth blessing, what was that? To the butcher, he blessed him. Don't live, don't die. Don't live, don't die. Don't live, don't die. Where will he go? Will he be in limbo? What did he mean by that? That cryptic blessing. Well, this person is living his life in such a way that if he died right now, he would have to suffer tremendously for having caused so much anguish by living into these unnecessarily. And if he keeps living, he's just going to keep doing the same thing. Hellish existence. So let's say, I don't know what else he could say. <laughs> that's pretty, that's pretty awkward. Someone tells you don't live, don't die. Anyway, yeah, his trajectory is really bad either way. Either way, he's in a hellish existence. Can you imagine? I've seen butchers, not in a slaughterhouse, at, at work. You know, blood-stained apron. You know, it's a ghastly scene. And the way they look, sometimes, some of them are pious on my Sankitan adventures. You know, they, it's their job, but it's the nature of the job. So it's hellish already, hearing the, the cries, the pitiful cries of the animals and having to deal with that and dehumanize yourself for your job. And then, so the reaction after that, the hellish life, the punishment that's there. So what's common in um, these, this story, uh, in all in this, these four cases, what's common, we're seeing that um, reference is made to an afterlife. That what we do in this life there's a, a corresponding reaction in the next life. So it, uh, it, uh, it infers that there is a law, the law of karma, that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. So that's what, that's what the Vedas, the Vedas propound, that there are laws, and if we break that law, those laws, then we have to pay for it. So this, uh, this theme about death that we're um, studying right now in the Bhagavatam, this theme of death, uh, what happens after death? That great unknown, it's mystified people um, for eons. What really happens after death? And different wisdom traditions, they have different explanations of what happens after death. Can anyone say? Like what some of these uh, traditions, what do they think happens after that? Yes. I worked in, uh, in Canada in public health with um, on what they call it their First Nations, being called here like uh, Native American, Native Canadian, like that. So most of my coworkers were from those different traditions. And one was explaining to me that their belief is that when you, um, before you're born, you meet with the Creator, and you you, ex you have like a discussion, and you talk about what you want to, to experience in your life, and they set up certain persons you need to meet and experiences you have to have on your way, and then you do that. And maybe you learn, and maybe you don't, and then you die, and then you do it again, kind of thing. It wasn't very fleshed out, it wasn't a very long conversation, but that's what I remember him saying. There was, there was kind of like a, this, this mutual journey thing that you're doing in consultation with the Creator. It kind of reminds me of Super Soul sets up everything for us. <clears throat> yeah, there's some similarity. And according, we get what we deserve. Yeah. It reminds me also, um, I have a sister-in-law, she's a Tlingit, well, she's half Tlingit Indian. <clears throat> lives in the Yukon, my brother. And they're very religious also. They believe there's an af afterlife and they believe in reincarnation. And uh, sometimes they try to prepare themselves for the next life. There's cases, documented cases by Ian Stevenson where um, he interviewed uh, people who, are, who remember pre their previous life. Uh, some of them are Tlingit Indians. <clears throat> and like somebody is going to die and they say, in the next life, I will come back as your child. And um, they leave certain marks on their bodies and so on. I can't remember it clearly. But the Tlingit Indians, they definitely believe that there is something like uh, punishment and karma 
and reincarnation. Any other um, views about the afterlife? Well, a common thing when I was growing up, what I used to hear was that you uh, just live your life and then your body just goes back into to earth and then that's it, basically. And who believed that? Uh, most of my, I don't, I really know, most of my friends, I guess. That was like a common thing yes. growing up, so I always used to contemplate on that. Yeah, it just used to freak me out sometimes. So. Yes, a lot of people believe like that, especially those who believe in the theory of evolution. Like when this body is dead, you're done. So they just think you as a living entity is just your physical body. As you're saying, thank you. Any other perspectives about the afterlife? Uh, I know that the ancient Egyptians had the belief that when you died, your soul went to to be judged. And if it was weighed against a feather, and if your yes. soul was lighter than the feather, you would rise to heaven. And if it was heavier than the feather, you would be eaten by a demonic crocodile. Thank you. Yes, I used to study Egyptology myself. Fascinating. And they really went out of their way to make arrangements for the afterlife. Isn't it? <laughs> These massive structures, the pyramids, and putting everything you would need in the next life to ensure that you kind of enjoy your opulence from this life in the next life. It reminds me also like uh, in the Hindu tradition, when somebody dies like they're duly cremated and so on, then after I think it's a week and a half, I actually attended that for members of my family. The pundit is there, the priest. But you have to get certain paraphernalia to help the person in their journey, like what's being described here now, where the, the Yamadutas, they roughly escort um, the soul to meet Yamaraj. And I remember we had to go shopping. <clears throat> we had to get like, I think we have to get an umbrella because we have to walk in, in hot sand. We have to get different items for the ceremony that the pundit is having. You have to get a blanket and different items. And I remember shopping and thinking, well, Ma wouldn't like this color. She never liked this color, so I should get the color she likes. So it kind of reminds me of that. So they, they have some idea, you know, the Hindus definitely, about um, the afterlife and assisting the soul on the journey. At least some kind of external assistance. So yes, yeah, so in any case, um, yeah, there's all these different views on what happens in life. Like some people believe, like you're saying, there's nothing. The that's it, the body just merges into it. But we, we accept the teachings of the Srimad Bhagavatam. The explanation that Lord Kapila is giving here, we accept that. Why we accept that is because we ourselves, we do not know better. And we accept the Srimad Bhagavatam as a very, very special. Uh, indeed, we accept the fact that um, all the Vedic scriptures, they are coming from the breathing of Krishna, the breathing of Mahavishnu. So they're beyond the mundane, they're supra-mundane. So it's coming from an infallible source. So all these Vedic literatures, they are coming from the breathing of the Lord. He's so very compassionate. Even his breath is compassionate. Like it said, the beautiful air in Colorado, it's the breath of Krishna. So when you're inhaling this sometimes pristine air, remember, it's Krishna's breath. So yes, it's, they're coming from the breathing of the gigantic Mahavishnu. And out of all those literatures, all those scriptures, there's one that's the best. It's called La Creme de la Creme the cream of the crop. And that cream of the crop is the Srimad Bhagavatam. So we take shelter and we gain knowledge from the Srimad Bhagavatam. We know ourselves that whatever knowledge there is in the material, it's all relative. And we ourselves, we are fallible. So we take shelter of the infallible. We are fallible in uh, what different ways are we fallible? What are our defects? Would anyone like to say what are our defects and why we gain knowledge from the Bhagavatam instead? 
Yes. Uh, we make errors and we're under illusion. Someone is studying. <laughs> yes. We make mistakes. We're in illusion. Thank you. Propensity to cheat. Propensity to cheat. Our senses are imperfect. They only operate within a certain range. Our senses are imperfect. Yes. So that's why we understand and accept that we're not perfect, so we take shelter to Srimad Bhagavatam. We see Lord Kapila here, he's describing an unemotional way, very uh, objectively. This is what happens, you know, he's doing Sankhya Yoga. So there's different categories here again. So he mentioned two different categories previously. There are those who live a devotional life, and their destination is they go to Vaikuntha, or some uh, place where it's conducive for them to make more spiritual advancement, wherever that is. And that, so that, there's that category. And then there's this category of the, um, the materialist, the deluded materialist. What's his destination? So very objectively, he's describing, well, this is what happens to them. They're arrested like a, a criminal is arrested for punishment. And, you know, by the Yamadutas, then the Yamadutas, they take like a bed sheet or a towel or something and drop it on the subtle body. They just cover the subtle body and uh, take the person very unceremoniously to meet uh, the Lord of Punishment, Yamaraj. So we see from the very first sentence in the purport, Prabhupada's making a distinction that we're not just the body like some materialist and atheistic people think, but we're more than that. There's different aspects of us. So he says in the very first sentence, he says, every living entity is covered by a subtle and gross body. So immediately we can see that we, the living entity, the jiva, we're not the gross body, and we're not the subtle body. We're distinctly different. Who are we? What's the term that's used for the living entity? The, the living entity. The jiva. Yes, the jiva, the soul. So I always think of the Russian matryoshka dolls. I, I like that because, you know, they're like, um, it's a set. And it's, it, it's so exciting, you know, for children and for me to, to open the door and you get a smaller door and a smaller door inside. And actually there's a lot of meaning behind my Chaska dolls. Yes, you know? Say that again on the microphone. It can represent motherhood, but also different aspects of being a human. Yes. It, yes, it can uh, represent uh, motherhood, fertility, and also there is like an esoteric meaning behind it, where you open and you come upon you know, all the different dolls decreasing in size that are stacked there. It also is symbolic of a desire to return to the innocence of childhood, to the innocence of childhood. So it reminds me of the living entity has his desire to return to his innocent, pure self. So similarly, like in my trusted dolls, we have the gross body, and then we go more within, we have the subtle body, and then within at the very heart and core, you have the jiva, the soul, that's um, just trying to enjoy through the subtle body. And one might say, well, especially for people who might be listening online, like, what is this subtle body you're talking about? What's the gross body? What is it? it is, what object it is? What is it composed of? So, what's the gross body com composed of? Yes, the outermost body. Earth, water, fire, air, ether. Earth, water, fire, air, and ether is composition of that. And what about the subtle body? Someone else? What is the subtle body composed of? Mind, intelligence, and false ego? Mind, intelligence, and false ego. So yes, the prophet's saying here that um, 
Our real self is completely different from this gross body and subtle body. And um, another thing, Prabhupada says that actually it's Lord Kapila Dev in the translation, we're moving on here. He says, as a certain words he uses, we can see that the diehard materialist, <clears throat> he's guilty. He is guilty of certain crimes and he has to pay for it. So you have words that are used here like punishment, covering his body, ropes, binding him, force, long distance, king soldiers, you know, punishment, uh, culprit, Prabhupada says in the purple. And one might wonder why is it, uh, why is he saying that the person engaged in criminal sense gratification? Like someone in the material world said, what's the harm? The guy was just trying to earn a living and take care of his family. He's a decent, law-abiding citizen. Why, why is this phrase being used that he was engaged in criminal sense gratification and now he has to face his punishment? Because what, what occurs in the material world is like you might have certain norms and ways of behavior and they are totally off or wrong or immoral. But because everybody's doing it collectively, um, the norm is that it's right. It's right because everybody's doing it. They never stop to think and get out of the box that something is wrong here. And that's where Bhagavatam comes in. And Bhagavatam is showing us what is light and what is darkness, what is knowledge and what is ignorance. So what kind of criminal sense gratification might a person be engaging in as a materialist? I would like to ask now. Criminal sense gratification. Yes, Tushka. Well, I, was, I was thinking in Bhagavad Gita, it's quite an understatement. Krishna says, for one who eats foodstuffs that's not offered is a thief, stain a thief. And so Prabhupada elaborates in various lectures, when this is Prabhupada, he says, we are not so impressed if one is, you know, the elephants are vegetarian, they eat grass and grass. So we are not very impressed with vegetarian or vegan or raw food or breathitarian. Um, even breathing without appreciating Krishna is criminal, according to this verse. So it's a little heavy because we think criminal, you know, shot someone, I raped someone, drug dealed, stole, you know, robbed the bank. But then the person that's just going about their ordinary life, um, there, may be, there may be those who are observing karma, but it's become mostly de-karma today. And so even this verse in Bhagavad Gita is quite revealed, because thief means you're a criminal. And so to, to say that someone who eats without offering foodstuffs is a thief, it's quite, quite a heavy statement. Like almost like, this is Krishna, the generous, kind-hearted, compassionate Lord, and he's saying such a heavy thing. So, what I, from when you ask about criminal, what are kind of criminal activities? It's we've come, we've it's it's our responsibility. We're hundred percent responsible that we've made a choice to turn away and not express our gratitude towards Krishna. So even eating, even if it's like all sattvic, which is better. I mean, right? Prabhupada even he does give references that right. At least don't eat the cow. Now mm -hmm. that'll help the world. At least don't eat cow. Um, but nevertheless, um, it's our 100% responsibility that we're in this dorga, in this prison. That means it's come to the point that, well, I'm a criminal. And not beat ourselves up, but, well, I'm a criminal. And what have I done to, what have I done that I'm in this, I'm shackled in this world of duality, three modes of nature. So I, I'm coming from more, it's a little bit more like just, yeah, we're all responsible. We're all in this jail, in this prison. And for those who've recognized it, go, oh, Krishna, I've turned away from you. Here I am. And whether it's good karma or bad karma, I, I just want to make sure that I'm offering my life to you. And so, anyways, I'll, I'll just reflecting. Just went right to that verse that, um, it, again, things like, you know, when we think of criminal, we're thinking according to in the world, a thief, drug dealer, rapist, child molester, whatever it might be. But every living entity uh, is responsible for being in this doorway. So anyway, that's just something that came to my mind.
Thank you. It reminded me of the first verse in the Sri Shapanshad. Visabhasi Damasarak Banj Yakincha Jagatyam Jagatya Natyaktina Banjita Magrana Kashatridana. That um yeah, you know, we just take everything that's on the on the earth here, everything within our experience, we just take everything for granted and think that it's we think that it's meant for us. And we just utilize everything for ourselves. And we, we get greedy and we try to exceed our quota. Like um, it said, you know, one should be satisfied with one's quota in the verse and not encroach on other people's quota. So one is like a thief in that respect, you know, trying to encroach on others. We want more. We don't want to be, uh, we don't want uh, simple thinking. Uh, high thinking, simple living. We get lust, greed, and anger, and we want to encroach on others and exploit others. And then I'm remembering what Prabhupada said um, about a little thief and big thief. Anyone remembers that situation, that scenario? I think it was referring to Alexander the Great, was it? Where? That's one, yeah, that's one example. So Alexander was a extremely empowered individual material that he conquered over um, Eastern Europe, the Near East, the Middle East. He got to India, halfway into India, and then he was repelled. And anyway, at some point in his uh, span of, of conquering, he um, was in one of these places, and he had established the capital, and he was trying to establish the rule of law, and a thief was brought to him, somebody who had been caught for thievery. And... Uh, so being the being like the established king, now he's saying I'm the king of the place, so I will I will give punishment. He says, What do you have to say for yourself? Are you guilty or innocent? What 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 is your what is your plea? And uh, the thief said, Well, I'm definitely a thief. I I, I stole it, just like they said. It's, it's true, but you stole all of this. You stole that throne, you stole this country. The only difference between you and me is that you're a really big thief, and I'm a little thief. And he was so impressed with the answer, he said, You're right. You may go. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice story. Thank you. And also, Prabhupada was talking to one business magnate. I think he was a dealer in glass, right? And Prabhupada was talking about thievery, how people are just taking Krishna's resources and using for themselves and claiming as their own without even wanting, you know, wanting to give gratitude to God, give thanks to God. So then he said, You're one of them too. And he said, But, but Prabhupada, I give donations and he said, well, okay, then, then you're not a big thief, you're a little thief. Yes. <clears throat> One thought just came to mind. Um, there's like a subtler um, level of, of this um, mentality that, you know, we, we own or something belongs to us. Um, like the level of our propensities, things that we're good at. Um, I experience the tendency to think that um, uh, something I'm good at is is my own doing, um, when actually my, any propensity that I have um, that is beneficial to others or to surviving in this world is really um, Krishna's resource. So um, I think that uh, this, this is a nice reminder to um, to any to recognize that any propensity we have is uh, Krishna's um, gift to us uh, in order to serve Him, and um, that that when we try to conceive any propensity being our own is is when we can develop pride and just um, entangle ourselves more in this world. Thank you. Yes, giving credit and thanks to where it belongs, to Krishna. Otherwise, you know, we're like wearing borrowed plumes. So anyway, moving on. on. I just found it um, so fascinating about this um, covering the subtle body. The Yamadutas, they take a bed sheet or blanket and cover their body. I'm just being facetious. But anyway, they cover the subtle body. And it's explained here in another verse why this is done, that it, uh, the 
Yamadu does cover the subtle body of a culprit. He's a culprit. Um, he's committed offense. And they take him to the abode of Yamaraj and punish him over that he's able to tolerate. So um, in order for him to tolerate the degree of punishment, the mind, intelligence, and false ego, they have to be covered. Otherwise, the mind will be screaming like anything. The mind, intelligence will be devastated. They'll be completely traumatized. It'll just be too much. So I was inferring from this, with the subtle body having to be covered to endure the punishment, we can see where the problem lies. Like Srila Prabhupada in the purport in this sixth canto, he refers to the subtle body as the body of desire. The body of desire. That's the one that's desiring the mind, thinking, feeling, and willing, planning for enjoyment. And we know from our experience in the material world that perhaps all of our pleasure is in the mind. It's in the mind. And it starts from the mind. So mind can be the enemy or the, or the best friend. So we're seeing here the importance of controlling the mind, of taming the mind, the intelligence and the false ego. And Prabhupada recommends how can that be done? How can one become even free from the dictates of the subtle body? Because what happens is the soul becomes so attached, not just to the gross body, but the subtle body. It's like riding with the subtle body, that even at the time of death, when you see the person lying there silently on the bed, the body, a lot of action is going on. It's taking place, that's invisible to our eyes. You have the subtle body and the soul. They're leaving and perhaps they have some, uh, some beings there to escort them. <laughs> you know, it might be Vishwamitas or Yamadutas to, um, to escort. So a lot of activity is taking place. And the soul is so attached to the subtle body Prabhupada explains that the soul thinks it's the subtle body. It identifies so much with matter. So then they go hovering, you know, together to a next body. And then there's more suffering because the mind wants this and that. So there's suffering in this life, like with the butcher. Then suffering at the time of death, as being described here. And then um, further suffering because of the desire to enjoy the soul of the subtle body. So there's suffering right through. True. So what's to be done? So Prabhupada says, practice, practice to become free of not just the gross body, but the subtle body also. And he said, how that can that be done? It can be done by following the method of Adarushrara. We all know that verse, right? Adarushrara. Following that, and he says, dovetail everything in the service of Krishna, as we know. Use the gross body in the service of Krishna. Use the mind in the service of Krishna. The intelligence. What about the ego? That's a formidable one. So um, for that, Prabhupada says, to, um, to transform the ego from being false to its real self, then one has to get into this um, mindset, this conception that I am, uh, I am not this body, I am spirit soul, and more than that, I am the eternal servant of Krishna. I am the eternal servant of Krishna. So in that way, if one is fortunate enough to, to, to hear this knowledge and act on it, then one can become free from all this suffering. And I was just thinking of one uh, overarching point that um, at this point in time, where Kapila Dev is talking about uh, reward and punishment, that we we should we should not just be satisfied with a lower idea to, that we're serving Krishna and worshiping Krishna to become free from pain and suffering, but we should aspire, we should strive to go to a, a higher platform where we want to become um, reunited with Krishna. And snap back to our real self, our real nature, our real identity. And take to this process, not just to become free from suffering. That will come, the freedom from suffering. But um, to reunite with Krishna. 
to serve Krishna with love and devotion happily in Krishna consciousness. So I'll stop here. There are any questions or reflections? I'll just prove this final point you made about this uh, dissolving the subtle body and uh, reminding ourselves that we're eternal servant of Krishna reminds me of how in puja, and actually anyone can recite these mantras, they're available for everyone, but just upon rising in the morning, the mind, you know, all the different things that weigh heavy on the mind, whether it's just, you know, I'm tired, or, you know, my back is sore, or what's happening today, or I got this appointment, or I have this, uh, you know, deadline, the mind is just going all over in anxiety, and how it's so nice to have those few prayers, before worshiping the deity. In fact, anyone can recite them. They're available. The Naham Vipro Nachanarapatir, that establishing myself that I'm a servant of the servant, and you know, I'm an eternal servant of Krishna, that someone I've forgotten. And, and, what, and there's several verses throughout Shastra that remind us of our constitutional position. So I was just thinking how fortunate we are that we have access uh, to these beautiful verses given by Acharyas, given by the Lord, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, uh, upon awakening. And just to be able to really uh, settle in to a, um, a, a, a place of solace and clarity. Oh, this is who I am, despite all these other anxieties, not at least for those few moments. And then we go into our japa, go into our deity worship, or, or kirtan. And so just, we're, we're, we're very fortunate we've been given this recipe, this process, just to be able to, just even the start of the day, to establish some, you know, platform of, okay, this is who I am, and this is who I'm not. Yeah, so I like that lot more. That method is so powerful in Bhakti Yoga, the sadhana and engaging and devotional service. You, you actually see the results second by second. Because as you say, sometimes we start up in the morning and mode of ignorance is still there. But by the time we prepare, upadam, get ourselves ready. And by the time we're doing our service, just a taste comes. And you want to do the service and you actually don't want to start and you like it and you want to go on and on. And uh, Krishna just gives you that taste. When you're actively using the gross, the subtle body and the soul is rejoicing in that. Rejoice, rejoice. It's Christmas. Well, it's not Christmas. It's the soul rejoicing. So you can see the effect of bhakti yoga. It's not something abstract and theoretical. But you can actively put it into practice and the results are right there, immediately you see purification, purification. Sometimes we fall back and forget, but once we take again actively to engage in emotional service, you see like, this is, this is, I'm in my element. This is really me, you know. Um, yeah, it's just enjoyable, Krishna makes it like that. Anything else? Any other reflections? You look like, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I was just appreciating the, everybody's reflections about how living entity can be a thief, and uh, specifically the one about uh, offering food, and how powerful of an experience that is in, in Krishna consciousness. I remember that was, when I first came to Krishna consciousness, I was like, wow, like you offer your food to God before <laughs> you even eat it? Like... I had the, like some experience of like a prayer like before a meal, but actually like you know preparing it for Krishna and taking the remnants. And Prabhupada was just talking on a lecture this morning about he was like for ten minutes, fifteen minutes, talking about the importance of prasadam and taking prasadam, glorifying how uh, powerful of a practice that is. So. I love that. It, it helps us to become selfless from the very beginning. You know, sometimes I'm making garlands I shouldn't like in the store. And oh, those flowers are so And immediately, you know, like, I don't know. But you explain, and they, they find it so attractive. Oh, you want to do like that with the food and the flowers? Everything first for Krishna, everything first for Krishna. It's an ongoing training in selflessness, like everything first for Krishna. They're very impressed. Oh wow, these people are so pure. They just love it and they want to do it and they end up doing it too. Anything else? 
something I've been thinking about um, recently that um, this mentality of or this kind of concept of being a criminal without paying um, respects or obeisances to the Acharyas or those saints who've come before and uh, you know the uh, Guru um, Shri Prabhupada um, and that you know I'm a, I'm a criminal when I don't um, first go approach the spiritual master and try to approach Krishna and um, his uh, eternal consort. And so just that idea of um, that we can make offenses um, if we're not respectful in that way. Thank you. So we appreciate the importance of Gurudev, the spiritual master. There are different degrees of purity in this world that we see in Bhakti Yoga. This is the highest, highest, highest level one can be in purity, to be pure. And uh, we should strive for that. So, yeah, uh, I guess I'll just end with be a criminal no more. Become reformed. Talking to myself. <laughs> Thank you very much. Srimad Bhagavatam, Ki Jai, Srimad Prabhupada, Ki Jai, Matai, Gopal, 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 